welcome to BC Wines and Vines. I'm your host, Christopher Mark. This episode is sponsored by Vitality, a supportive hub to help you realize all your vineyard aspirations using quantitative data gathering and analysis, precision viticulture tools, community connection with a love for terroir in its truest form. Whether mapping subsoil irrigation or chlorophyll efficiency, Vitality pushes the edges of science and terroir to help you create better fruit more sustainably and profitably. Vitality also has a weekly newsletter with BC Wine News, useful resources and interesting articles, whether you're a winemaker, on the business side, in the vineyard, or just passionate about wine. You can sign up at the website vintality.ca. This episode, we're joined by John Skinner, the proprietor of Painted Rock Estate Winery and president of the Okanagan Wine Initiative. John and Painted Rock have won numerous awards from Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year to Decanter's 2020 Canadian Wine of the Year. John is one of the foremost champions of BC and Canadian wine, both in advocating for the industry at all levels of government, while also aggressively driving the recognition of Canadian wine internationally. One of the themes you'll hear from John is his pursuit of elegance and the patience and dedication it takes to achieve. This started with the foundation of Painted Rock, which John and his wife Trish took their time to find, as well as how they planted, how they farmed the grapes, and how they make their wine. A common theme in all our episodes is the importance of recognizing others, perhaps most perfectly embodied by Cornel Sidhu, and John is no different. You'll hear much about an internationally regarded wine consultant from Bordeaux, Alain Sutra, who has heavily influenced Painted Rock's evolution. The last major theme in this episode is international. John shares why he believes it is critically important for BC and Canadian wine to export internationally and build a global reputation built on our own identity. We recorded this video in the podcast at Painted Rock, and you can find the video and clips at our YouTube channel, Vintality. It was an absolute pleasure to talk with John, and I think you'll really enjoy our conversation. Well, John, welcome to uh, BC Wines and Vines. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Chris. Very happy to be here. We appreciate your coming. Yeah. So you've got a beautiful property here. This is just absolutely gorgeous. It's a pretty awesome place, especially yeah. when it's sunny like this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, I thought maybe we'd start by talking about, obviously, you're someone really influential in our industry and who's really passionate about uh, BC having a place internationally. So I thought maybe, I mean, you're president of the Okanagan Wine Initiative, uh, one of the founding members. So maybe if you just want to start by sharing a little bit about why you think the international market is so important and well, why you've made really that important. priority. You know, when I, when I first got into the industry... Um, Export was, it really wasn't pursued by my, our community. And as we grew, you know, very early on, I guess in about my third or fourth vintage, I exported a reasonable amount of wine to China. And I, I was always, it was, it was my plan at the very beginning to try to um, work with the community and get our wines on the international stage. And I thought that's how you're going to earn a brand and that's how you're going to earn you know, a reputation. You can't do it in your backyard and you can't do it as, as a small industry waiting for people to come to the region. It's one thing and it was good if you got 30 wineries, but when we have, now we're close to 300, you need to reach out. And, and I early on thought 
okay, uh, I want to make my wines for the international community. I want to compete with the, you know, the Okanagan's long been known for making, producing some of the finest fruit in the world. And my early business kind of assumption was if we can produce some of the finest fruit, why can't we produce some of the finest premium wine grapes? Mm -hmm. And if that's the case with the right mandate, equipment, and expertise, maybe we can compete with the very best. So I got out there, I got to China, I was exporting around 40% of my wines at the very beginning. And early on, I, I, was, I, I had a very generous call from a good supporter, a surgeon in Vancouver. And I spoke with his brother, David Gleave in London. He owns Liberty Wine Merchants in London, one of the most powerful agencies in London. And lo and behold, he's from uh, BC, but has lived in London for, at the time, for 35 years or so. And he, he generously had some suggestions for him. And he said, you know, I understand that you're exporting to China and doing these things. If you want to grow your brand and grow your, your reputation, uh, don't export all your wine to China. Get into, get into the, get into London, get into New York, go where the, go where the wine writers are. And, and, win them over. And that was probably the most influential conversation I've ever had in the industry. Uh, I hung the phone up and I phoned some contacts in Ottawa and I inquired about getting access to Canada House in London. And that, was, that resulted in a new event called Canada Calling that has, I think the last one we did was the 10th. COVID's canceled the last couple, but uh, it was, I think the first one we had, it was like uh, 150 attendees, industry attendees. The last one had 600. And I've got a distrib distributor in London, uh, uh, the wine treasury, they're fantastic. My wines, it's not about getting and exporting all your product. It's about getting your wine in front of the right people and on the primary tables so that it'll get noticed and you won't get written up in any market if your wines aren't available, but you needn't sell all your product there. So you don't make any money selling wine into London because everyone in the world dumps wine into that market. So provided you can get your wines into that market and they're taken on. So our wines are now, they, they were, I, I think they still are at the Clove Club in London, the top restaurant in London, 67 Pall Mall. Like things getting in front of the right people. And, uh, um, so we've, we've had good success there. I've been going to Provine and the Okanagan Wine Initiative was born of the fact that there was a group of us who were export oriented, who'd found one another. And lo and behold, we're all at Provine and it's Christine Coletta and Tony Haller and, and uh, the guys from Mission Hill, um, uh, Daryl was, was there from Mission Hill. And, and we all realized you know, we'd be better off working collectively as a unit and focus our energies. So let's win the market in London. Let's win the market. Let's, let's go to Provine. It was interesting, just before COVID hit, we were slated, the group, the Okanagan Wine Initiative, we're, we're trying to focus on specific markets and win business as the Okanagan. And that was, it was pretty exciting. We're, we're getting traction. In Europe, where we used to, at, at Provine in Germany, the first couple of experiences that I had, people would come up to the Canadian pavilion and it would be a person an hour. 
after the, I think I was there the eighth or ninth time, there were 50 people constantly in front of us. Like it was a different, we have, we're now known and we don't just produce ice wine. They know us and I know the crowd and it's, it's really grown. So interestingly enough, one of my good friends, I'm very proud to say in the wine industry, um, you know, I've got to, I'm very, I got to know Stephen Spurrier quite well. And that was, you know, a real honor. And Stephen was a great champion of ours and, and not out there selling our wine, but, but giving us the time. And he came, we spent I spent a lot of time with him in London and I, I got to, to host Stephen and the Okanagan Wine Initiative, hosted Stephen uh, to the Okanagan a year and a half ago. And he toured all of our wineries and he went and he presented to, to the college, to industry. And we, you know, we, we invited everybody from industry. But one of the other connections I m met in London early on was Richard Hemming, master of wine, uh, works with Jancis Robinson. And he's a gem of a guy. And just like Stephen, he, he kind of recognized that our enthusiasm was there and he had the time for us. And the first time I was there, we connected. The second time, I knew, you know, it, 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 it just built over the years. So much that by the time rubber's hitting the road and we're getting on some of these radars, uh, I'm talking to him at the last time I was in London. And he said, you know, I'm not going to be in London next time you're here. I said, really, where are you going? He said, my wife's going to start be starting a school in Singapore. So I'm going to go, I'm moving to Singapore. And I said, wow, I've always wanted to be there. And I think that that's kind of a place we might want to investigate. Well, the discussion starts. He gets landed in Singapore. Well, lo and behold, I've been going to London by that time for 10 years. And we would always do the Canada House event, but also through Mark Nadeau's great contact, we would do an industry smaller tasting. It doesn't threaten the big event at Canada House, but it would be three, three or four wineries from BC, three from Ontario, and one or two from Nova Scotia. And it would be at uh, 67 Palmo. And it's a member-only tasting. So it was industry at the Canada House event, but member-only. And these are the people you want to get in front. They are really influential wine people. So we would do that, a member tasting and a dinner. And the last dinner we had, it was the, the theme of the dinner was Okanagan wineries that work with the Land Sutra. It was myself. It was Kalmana, uh, the Triggs family, and... Uh, Papa Grove, Tony Haller is one of my best friends in, in the industry. I just love the guy because my deal with Tony, he says, you, you book it and I'll attend. <laughs> so when we go to China, he comes with me. When we go to, so, so lo and behold, the conversation starts. I get to know Six and Palma quite well. Uh, Richard Hemming is in Singapore and he and I are talking and he said, John, they're just opening a new branch of 67 Palma in Singapore. It's the penthouse of the highest building. <laughs> and I said, now we're talking. So I contacted the government again, like we had to get, I kind of a deal with the government that they will make available Canadian national assets. I asked them at the very beginning, they said, if, you know, why, I, I said, why don't you make consulates and embassies available for us to do wine things so we can grow the industry? And Harper's response was, sure. <laughs> you know, Michelle Rempel was the one who, who was our biggest advocate at the time. She was Minister of State for Western Economic Diversification. And she opened all these doors for us. And Michelle, thank you. She's a <laughs> rock star. 
but she did it. And, and so I'm never afraid to get on the phone and even though it's a different government, ask them, can we get Singapore? And lo and behold, we're, we're going to do something at 6-7 Pomo, but they, we were going to do something at not only at the consulate, but at the ambassador's residence. We were going to be doing a dinner at the residence and an event at the consulate or the embassy and then a thing at 6 Pomo. That was all supposed to happen just before COVID happened. So it didn't go through. But, but we're planting these seeds. And if I go, it's a winery. If we go, it's a region. It's just night and day. I found that when I, like I got on a list in, in Bordeaux, at the top restaurant in the city, in the core center of Bordeaux is called Le Chapon Fin. And I got my wines on that list. And we're the only Canadian wine on that list. I would much prefer, instead of being in the other category, being in the Okanagan category. Mm. Let's get, you know, let's get uh, Martin's Lane there. Let's get, so, because we aren't doing the same thing. Let's get Checkmate and Papa Grove and Chris Coletta's, uh, um, you know, I, I was thinking crush pad, but it's haywire. Yeah. Get haywire. Like it's awesome. And, and we, we tick different boxes all the time. So if we want to get on a cruise ship line, it's a lot better to have, you know, uh, Summerhill or partners 50th parallel. And we offer different price points. We offer different offerings so that you, you really do, you know, you can be a page on a list. Yep way better than being on the other page. I don't want to be on the other page. <laughs> and that was, so these things are all, the export market is full steam ahead. I have just, I mean, with COVID, we're still selling a lot of wine. And I just sent, we're sending two pallets of wine to Germany. Uh, just did a couple weeks ago, pallet of wine to Denmark, pallet of wine to California. You know, it's a lot, not a lot of pallet of wines, 56 cases. It's not much. But it's getting there. I just did a, a fantastic Zoom call with the, um, it was with the consulate down in Los Angeles. And my agent down there, VJ from Cascadia Wines in, in California, put it together. The government worked with her. And we had like 15 of the top buyers on the call. So I'm shipping more wine to California. That's what it takes. Mm. And you work as, you know, uh, Canada is a very easy sell on the international market right now. Not a bad time. Our currency sucks. <laughs> makes us competitive. If we want to export against the U.S., you know, I love the U.S., but if we're going to be, if we're competing for the market in Tokyo, I, I stand a pretty good chance. My wines are in Japan now at selective ski resorts and, and in, in some top markets. But again, I probably... When I was exporting to China at the very beginning, I was exporting 40%. Now, with all my export efforts, I only export around 15, we, of, of up to 8,000 cases. We export 15%. This is peanuts. But we're there. So why am I going to get written up? You know, I sent my wines to Eric Asimov recently. Am I going to get written up in the New York Times if my wines aren't available? No. So my wines are available in New York now. Just that's where we're getting. But a lot of... I mean, I think that's awesome, but a lot of pushback you'll hear from some people is they're saying, okay, I can sell everything here, right? I can sell everything in BC. Why do we need to go? Why I get a lot of that. Yeah. I get a lot of that. And because I built 
Painted Rock is a generational family business and it's in a family trust. And I'm not doing this for my kids, I'm doing it for my grandkids and generations after that. And, and it is about getting out there and being proud of what you're doing. And if you don't win, you learn. So when I go and have my wines poured against some of the top, you know, I was at a dinner where Cheval Blanc was poured beside Red Icon. And it was the 05 Cheval Blanc, it's one of the finest wines in the, on the, in the world. And we weren't put to shame. It was it was lovely context. It was my 09 icon and and this this the 05 Cheval Blanc, but it just it was at a dinner with Stephen Spurrier and, and a number of the top reviewers in London, and you know one of the masters of wine referred to Stephen who was sitting to my right during the dinner, and when they finally got to the last two wines of the night, it was the Cheval Blanc and the Pinot, and and they're tasting the two and they're looking at one another, and the one gentleman said to Stephen, he was going like this, and he said, Stephen, what are you going to say? Stephen, Stephen turned to him and he said, I can't say anything because John will quote me. <laughs> and he's totally right. He's totally right. I would have quoted him. So about 20 minutes later, I didn't want to push him on it. About 20 minutes later, Stephen stood up, and there's 14 or 15 people at the table. And he said, okay, I've got a quote for John. And I'm thinking, my heart's in my mouth. And he said, John, your painted rock red icon is more CB than BC. That's enough. That's enough. <laughs> you know what? That's really nice. You know, he, he, I think he gave it a lot of thought. And just mm. that from somebody with such currency and credibility was just, you know, these are baby steps. Yeah. And, and, and you, you asked me, you know, uh, why do it if you can sell out? Um, it's interesting because I'm able to sell my wines in other markets at better prices. And that's enabling me to keep my, you know, I've always, my biggest contention in this whole journey, I'm seeing some prices right now that are really starting to move up quickly in the Okanagan, and we haven't done that. And the reason is I've been able to raise some prices in the export markets. Um, I think a price point has to be earned, not assumed. Hmm. So you might think, hey, I think that's worth 150 bucks right now. You need someone else to be telling you that and writing you the check for that before you tell them that it's or 110 or whatever. Like those are some pretty big numbers. Um, our icon in the 12 years that we've been, that it's been in the market, uh, our first vintage was 55 bucks, and I think we're 59. Like we just, we, I haven't been in a hurry, but what what's happened instead is we built a community of 3,700 wine club members, and. If I don't have to employ an agency, which I don't, we can pass that savings on to our, our to our wine club. It's it's a mm. partnership, mm. and and so that enables me to keep our prices down. Our efficiencies are fantastic, and uh, you know it's it's just it's just a different way of looking at it. And at one point, if we are able to, who knows? Maybe it's my great grandkids that can garner prices like others do in the international stage that's that's the journey you want to earn it so if we stay at you know if we max out at 8,000 cases and stay there hey that model works for Petrus yeah. <laughs> it's, it's you, you needn't be bigger isn't always better it, it is it, it isn't and and if I found a property that was I as at least as good as I, I don't think I never ever find another property as good as this but I found if I found one really close I could expand a little bit, mm -hmm. not in a hurry to do it. So we're just, we're exceptionally efficient now. And uh, no, I really have a wonderful team. Everybody knows, you know, the, we, we have such um, 
it's a really healthy environment here. We're, I don't play the card, uh, the organic card, but uh, very early on in the journey, Alain recognized how special this place was. And he said, you know, you should never spray anything here. And, and hmm. I, I loved that right at the beginning. He said, I want you to go out and buy a grape hoe. And instead of worrying about the weeds, because when he first came here, weeds were bigger than the plants. I couldn't find the plants. <laughs> he said, grape, get a grape hoe. Don't be spraying these. So we've used a grape hoe ever since. And it's more labor intensive. But if we're going to be stewards of this property, I don't want to put anything that never becomes inert into that soil. Hmm. You know, it's just the, it's a choice that we've made. But and I still think that over time, the only negative about uh, that I see, and I'm just speaking candidly, about organics is that it can be used for marketing to a large degree. Yeah. And, and, and that's it. I don't play by that hand. So I don't talk about it, really. It's not on a label and I'm not certified, but we just do the right thing. Yeah. And that's just, that's just it. You talk to my team. Barry curses about it every once in a while. He's my vineyard manager because <laughs> it's just, it, it, it's more work, mm -hmm. but it is what it is. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's, that's an interesting point because at the end of the day, organic is just a certification. So it's just a set of rules, which may be beneficial or not, but it's not whether you're farming well, whether you're winemaking well, that's a certification isn't going to tell you that. It isn't. And you know, it gets to the word terroir. Mm -hmm. A lot of people here think it's just the dirt. It's not. It's the mandate. It's the people. It's everything that you do. It's, the, it's where your brain is at on the dirt. Like it's a, it's a bigger, you, you read the definition of terroir um, by the French and it's not just that piece of dirt. It's, it's a big collective um, idea. And, and that's, that's what I, I subscribe to, as does Alain. Like yeah. he's, he's always, he doesn't blend the wine for us. He does that amongst a million other things. He knows every plant. He'll come back, he'll comment on something and he'll know exactly, he, he's only, he's here six times a year. But he, he's studied this place since the day we planted, and he knows everything about it. So, I mean, it's, it's funny just talking about terroir, because that's something when we sat down with or stood up with Sav Pinte, uh, that's a point she was making as well, is that oh. it's, it's everything, right? Mm. It's, it's your winemaker, it's, it's the microclimate, so which it's your soil, it's the weather, but it, you know, in your location, but it's, it's the whole vineyard and winemaking, it's your whole operation. It's so interesting. I, I love it because, and I, I, I big fan of Zeps. She's really smart, great um, ambassador to our region. And it's super good to have people from other regions here adding to the good. But, but the whole idea of site influences are so important and so unique in the Okanagan Valley because you look to, no two properties are the same. We have this amphitheater of rock that provides heat. We have a low row of mountains behind us that when the sun goes down, there's a cold air that sweeps through the vineyard. We are becoming known. And, and again, it, it, it's one of these things. I don't go out on the international stage and sell my wine. I go out on the international stage and pour my wine and listen. Hmm. And that's when I learned that it, when I was at Le Chef Enfant in Bordeaux and I poured for this chef sommelier who I have huge respect for. And he looked at me and he said, he, he, what didn't he want to taste the Cabernet Franc? He tasted everything. And he said, I really like these wines. Um, I'm going to bring them on. And I said, can I pour your Cabernet Franc now? And he said, he said, oh, I got to stop you there. We, we have a collective, we, we have a group of sommeliers that work here and we all agreed 
that we will only buy Cabernet Franc from these regions, and he listed them off because they have to have a bright acidity. Mm. And I said, <laughs> I said, well, can I just pour you it? And and he said, he said, why not? I like the other ones, so I poured him like half a glass. I wanted him to get the aromatics. I only had one chance, and uh, he lives with it for the longest five minutes of my life. He puts his glass <laughs> down, and uh, he said, he said, we just found our fifth region. <laughs> wow. And that wine has been on their list. And that is, again, and he said, it's the acidity. You've got the acidity. And, and so when I am uh, doing these Zoom calls with the buyers in California, I'm not competing with their, you know, I'm not trying to say we're better and worse. We're different. We are not Napa. Napa do well at what they do. But why don't you try an Okanagan wine where we have cool nights? So you're going to get, it's different. Yeah. So, so celebrate the difference and, and have, have a different place in your cellar for it and and uh it's it's being understood now and uh you know if people get to know that word okanagan the europeans are learning how to pronounce it (laughs) (laughs) it's not okanagan it's not okanagan (laughs) think think copenhagen with an o (laughs) the guy looks at me and says okanagan the other guy says okanagan o (laughs) so you're gonna anyway they're funny guys but uh we're, we're we're getting there so let me push you on that a little bit more, though. So why, I mean, why is that, why do you, because you've done so much, and you and certainly a member of other specific wineries, but why do you think the international market is so important um, for, for you to have devoted, even from the beginning when you were selling wine to China, so much effort and time to developing it? Why not just be here and, you know, and, and just focus just on BC. Well, you know, it's it's respecting the consumer and it's earning that price point. But you can't assume that they're going to make the effort to come here. Hmm. So when we when I get to London the first time and I was one of the organizers of the first one and uh, a couple of the top wine writers knew that. And the fact so so the third time I was there and I was talking to Spurrier and, and he said, he said, I'm so happy that you've decided, because the government didn't necessarily want to do this every year. Hmm. And I got in a little argument with them at one point, and I said, it's got to be every year, because we have to, you, you, you've got to win the business. And it's by going and going and going and going. And that's what happens. And if you go every second year, you're entirely in a different category. So we were there the third year, and I was out to dinner with Stephen, and he said, thank God you're still here. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, I won't say the other wine reason, but he said, we invested a whole lot of time and effort in this other wine reason. They came for two years, ticked the box, and never came back. And it, it engendered a, a, a little bit of animus. And, and I got it, because they, these guys had invested their time and energies and, and really given them profile. But it's not a one-off thing. Like, what we have to do when you go the first time, um, you you know, it's a cold call. It becomes a warm call. It becomes, now, they've kind of established a knowledge base. They can refer back and say, I remember your 07 was like this, and now it's like this. And I'm getting those now. Well, hey, you know what? I'm, we're on our, our, it's 2021 now. My first vintage was 07. So now I'm getting contextual observations that are so important to me. So one of the most interesting things was in 2013, that year, 
um, Alain had noticed, he'd been trying to teach me, and this is a funny story at Painted Rock, he'd been trying to teach me how to discern aromatics in a berry. Okay. Okay, that used to drive me crazy, because without sticking a berry in my nose, I don't know how to do it. Like, yeah. it just used to drive me crazy. He said, don't you get these aromatics? And I said, no, it's just, it's driving me nuts. So in 2013, we'd harvested about 70% of the planting block. It was November 3rd, and I'd take a berry, and I turned to Alana and said, wow, do you get these aromatics? And he started to laugh. He said, John, if you didn't get it now, you'd never get it. <laughs> and, and it was just profound. And he said, what I'd like you to do, something has changed. So we had never done a varietal Cabernet Franc up until 2013 because it was somewhat linear. If you tasted it, and I never did a barrel tasting on it because it was a very important role player in the icon. But for its aromatics, it was not a worthy candidate as a standalone varietal because it didn't have the mid-palate and mouthfeel. It just didn't. Lo and behold, 2013, Alan said, I want you to excavate a trench beside this planting block. I want mm. to see what's down there. And we did it, and lo and behold, the roots were, I don't know how deep they're, like nine or ten feet. They're down in the rocks. And, and, and Alan's pointing at them, and he said, he said, this is your reason right here. Well, we then noticed it in the Cabernet Franc, we noticed it in the Merlot, we noticed it in everything as it, you know, it's not the same depth everywhere, but as it came on. So after that year, every single varietal at Painted Rock is 100%. It didn't used to be like that. Our Merlot would have a little bit of Malbec in it. Like we would we'd tweak things. Mm -hmm. And it was, Alain always, but now that you're getting these terroir-driven messages, why do you fool with it? Like, don't don't blend in another varietal that can that can in, have have an effect on what you're getting. If you taste my Merlot from 13, 14, 15, 16, you'll see the same characteristics, but just with age getting better. Mm. And that's you know those are those are really interesting discoveries. And for me, anything we've discovered at this site since we bought it has just been a positive. We've never had. And that's a pretty amazing discovery from air movement to we don't have an issue with, with rodents or birds because those rocks are full of hawks. They feed here. Yeah. yeah. So we don't have just it, when it comes to September, October, come by. We're not bird netting. We don't bird net because those guys, you know, if you hang around long enough today, you're going to see this and they just spend time over the vineyard hmm. and they clean off or they scare away. <laughs> yeah. I say to my friends down, okay, falls. I said, I say, I say, the birds up there saying, go down and see Jack down, <laughs> down there, okay, falls. <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> we don't have an issue with it, but uh, we're quite blessed. One, one thing you, you hit on, I'm really curious about, because this is something, obviously, that's so often discussed, especially here, is, I mean, either from working with Alan, or, or how did you get that? that depth of rooting because that's obviously a major issue especially when you're having to irrigate oh really really, really good here. really good what what we did at the very beginning this was a land's recognition of the fact uh year two he came we did a study and the roots were mm -hmm. were making their way to the surface so we're we're on drip irrigation and every second year we do every second row and you spade it and it and and anything so it would cut off anything that was going horizontal Interesting. It, you know what? It totally worked. It totally worked. When we did that Cabernet Franc block, mm -hmm. it would, so it would have, would have happened every <laughs> second year huh. when it stopped doing that. And then it got more uh, aligned to dependence on the, on the drip irrigation. Now that we're getting to the point, we, you know, we're a desert. There, 
we're going to irrigate less as the roots get down there. Mm -hmm. Chardonnay, probably a lot less because it's coolest part of the vineyard. And, and it's, I, I, I think we could be, I'm not saying off the irrigation, but, but a lot less. Mm. And these are just, again, live the experience. This is a very renowned agricultural site. It was the largest apricot orchard in the British Commonwealth. It was fa famous oh, wow. for it. It was, it was planted in the late 1800s, I think. And it's, so it was long known for it. It was called the Black Hawk. But so we've just taken on an opportunity here that I think is, as I said, is generational. So my lot in life is don't screw it up. <laughs> just, you know, for my little window of influence, yeah. it's just carry the, you know, I'm going to carry the torch. Um, but I think the family know it. Like my mm. daughter, Lauren, is director of sales. And she's far better educated in wine than I am. She's WSET level three. She did her MBA in Bordeaux, luxury oh, brand wow. management, food and wine. And she, I love working with her because when we do some, we do a Zoom call, I can speak to the global vision and she speaks to specifics. When they talk about a wine, Lauren can dial that in with the, you know, with the professionalism that's just so essential. When you analyze wine, there, there's the terminology that has to be perfectly consistent. What you're observing in a certain variety or yes. clone or even clone. Sometimes mm. certain things are, are different. Like our clone 99 or 100 of Syrah are quite different. But people will know that yeah. and they'll pick it out. And um, anyway, it's uh, it's it's fun part of the journey. I definitely want to talk a bit about the family and the fact that, I mean, there's so much of your family working here. You, you're thinking generationally. Before we, we get there, maybe quickly just who you could explain for people who may not know who Alan is. Um, Alain Sutra. Mm -hmm. uh, Alain Sutra owns Ertis Consulting out of Bordeaux. And the way I found Alain, well, he found me. I didn't find him. Alain was the consultant that worked for the Merlot family when the first vintages of Sousse um, La Rose were produced. Hmm. The French family was joint ventured with Vincor, and they they made they, they worked together on this wine. Uh, the French family sent their expert over. And who was it? Alain Sutra. So that was in the middle, late 90s. And he, so he knew the Okanagan Valley. Um, in 2004, we spent a year analyzing this site. We got a planting strategy of the two clones per variety. It was very specific. And kudos, Valerie Tate did the planning strategy and she's just a gem. Mm -hmm. She's so knowledgeable and she, I picked the right person for it because she, we put a weather station in the middle of the property, we had a whole bunch of data. And, and when Alain saw, so what happened was I was given this grocery list of, it's a great story, I was given a grocery list of clones and varieties to, 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 to uh, acquire. And uh, I went to the guy that, that does the acquiring here and a week later, he got back to me and he said, I can get everything you need. And I said, really? I thought there was some issue with certain clones. They couldn't get them. And he said, well, I can't get you clone 99 and harder so I can get you these other two. And I can't get you these two clones of Cab so I can get you these two. And, and I said, look, I spent four years looking for this property, a year analyzing the heck out of it. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to plant almost as good. You give me the name and the number of that nursery. I want to talk to the guy. <laughs> and he was reluctant. But over about a week, I wore him down. He gave me his contact and I called him and I bribed him <laughs> after a long conversation <laughs> my terrible French and his terrible English I paid him a buck a plant I bought 55,000 plants I paid him a buck a plant more and I got everything I wanted well what's the next thing after our call that he does 
he phones his friend, Alain Sutra in Bordeaux. He said, Alain, you should go back to this uh, Okanagan where you used to go. Some guy's blowing his brains out. <laughs> and that was, that was, so a year later, I get a call from Alain, and Alain introduced himself, and he just came here. And, he, and, and we walked and talked, and, and, and I just, uh, you know, I didn't hire him right away. He kept coming back for two years because we, we just planted, so I don't have anything. But he's overseeing things. And then when the time came, I hired him. And man, I, it was just, a, he loved the planting strategy. Uh, but he's, he's been involved with us since day one. So, so not, not actually day one. At the very, very beginning, we, we, uh, he, he got involved once the wine was in, in barrel right at the very beginning. But um, it's been integral to our journey. And what I did after that was I introduced him to Tony Holler of Poplar Grove. I'm not competing with Tony. Hmm. Like, I love the guy, and I love what they're doing. They're integral part of our industry. Let's get the team, and let's go win business. So he was... Um, you know, Don Triggs knew Alan, so he brought him on with Comina. And, and he consults to a few others, and it's, it's just better for all of us. Because there's, when I first got in the industry, there were sort of, I think there were three primary consultants in the Okanagan. And everybody, it was the same, mm -hmm. everybody was kind of working from the same talent pool. And I didn't, that wasn't my thought at the very beginning. I wanted to find somebody that was going to, work f with us and for us. I thought I'd just hire a winemaker from elsewhere. Um, and uh, Alain convinced me otherwise. He said, I, I can educate your staff. So I put Gabe through University of Washington uh, through the enology course. And he's, he's, Alain really gets along well with him. Hmm. And what he's now had a 12-year tutorial with him, or 11-year tutorial with Alain. And it's constant. And Alana has great confidence in Gabe. So it's a really good synergistic. But it's, you're not, there were things that we were doing different than other wineries in the Okanagan. And, and I'd have people here saying, you don't do it that way in the Okanagan. I talked to friends of mine. No, we're doing such and such. We don't do that here. I said, well, we do it. That's the way we do it. And, it, you know, it's proved to, you know, just, I think the biggest advantage I've had in this industry Chris, since I started, was knowing what you don't know. If I have a single, if I have a single lesson that was learned, sometimes in life, accept what you, you know, do know what you don't know. And, and I, I brought in expertise and trusted them. And occasionally I've had to change things, but you'll figure that out. Because if you, if you develop this bigger brain trust, they'll help you navigate it. And I had a core group of locals and some international, and then they, and then Alan got in, and Alan. So, so we've learned to navigate this, and then there've been a couple of personnel changes. But my vineyard manager's been vineyard manager since almost day one. Barry Green, he's lovely. He knows every plant. He's he's so dedicated, and and you know you taste that in the wine. Every person we have a fabulous vineyard crew. I don't bring in, uh, you know, we hire locally, and we've we've had the same people here for a lot of years working in the vineyard and I swear you taste it in the wine. Yeah, you're building up an, ex an expertise here. You totally are to because the land will get in the vineyard and he'll teach them to do things differently. Like they do, when it comes to pruning, they do it a specific way when it comes to everything. It is, it is his way, not their way. And, and 
it's counting the number of buds dependent on the size of the, like he had a chart at the very beginning that he would go out at the very beginning. He had one of my staff go out at the very beginning and rate the, the, the size of the trunk of the plant one, one, two or three, because there's various success in various areas. So if it was a one, you'd put the cane down X number, X distance with X number of, of buds on it. If it was a two, if it was a three. And all of a sudden, this was vastly different than these guys that had worked in other places. But the, the plant was carrying the appropriate amount of fruit. And, you know, over time, they just knew how to do it instinctively. Hmm. But they'd worked elsewhere and they'd never done it that way. And that's just... I'm not speaking ill of other places. It's just going in with an open mind that, hey, this guy has generations of winemaking in his DNA, and he's but he's so scientific and objective. And hey, if you think about it, his brand is attached to this too. Hmm. So when we are doing this international call in a few nights with Academy Devan, it's the theme of the call is Painted Rock and Alain Sutra. So I mean, his his business is attached to us, and that when we did that uh, dinner at Six Seven Pomo last year with Jancis Robinson and Stephen Spurrier, and the theme was Okanagan wineries that work with the Land Sutra. Like he's got, uh, you know, he says I'm the only customer he's ever had that never says no. <laughs> I take great pride in that. I said the first time I ever say no, it's going to be the one time I make a really big mistake. So I'm just never going to do it. But he justifies it all the time. When we do something and we have to do something differently, he'll have a good solid rationale for it. Hmm. And he thinks very long and hard about it. And he gets, so it's not about, hey, do this, because I tell you, it's, hey, do this, and this is why. Hmm. And so, you know, he'll teach, Gabe and I, we'll be walking in the vineyard together and, and Barry, and he'll teach us one thing. And then the next time, a couple times later, he'll quiz us on it. Hey, when you get crown goal, what do you do about that? And you know those, that's really good, yeah. Or or whatever. Like he's he's yeah. he's. It's just it's a curiosity for him whether or not we're picking it up. But early on, we realized better listen because you're going to quiz us on this later. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's fun. So I mean, something you you've hit on. I'm curious, to, maybe to have you talk a little bit more on. It's been a bit of a theme on the podcast is kind of this interplay between generational knowledge, which we're trying to build here and other places have, right? I mean, the, the people coming from France have it, like, they have a generational knowledge, sometimes six, seven generations of farming a specific site. And at the same time, we don't have that, which is a disadvantage, but we have the ability to do things differently, which is also why, for example, there are some French people coming here or going to Oregon because they can experiment a bit. Do You know, they, they, they can combine that. So how do we... How do you think about that? Because you've talked about that kind of generational knowledge, but also combined with you don't have to do things the way they do we're it. A new, in, we're the new kid. And you know, when we had that dinner with Jancis in London, and, and it was, I was sitting. Jancis Robinson? Jancis and Stephen, there's mm. like 14 of us a year and a half ago. Um, I was seated here, Jancis is to my left, and Alan was there. And I stood up and introduced Painted Rock and what the whole theme of it was. And then when the dinner started, Jancis turned to... Alan and asked him some very direct questions and I was so proud of him and she said this is a question from imagine sitting at a dinner and, and Jancis turns and said Alan what's the future of wine god what a question what a question I thought whoa Alan without missing a beat he said it's about sustainability 
It's about like it was all about what you do and how proper and smart you are. And and his answer, I can't, I don't know the exact quote. Honestly, I I think I saw Jens's jaw or jaw dropped. He was just perfect. It was absolutely. Um, the other thing that he said was working with me. He said, I don't think anybody knows more about their terroir than Painted Rock. And the reason for that was all the science that was available to us and the tools. Maybe there is now because in the Okanagan, everybody's able to do this, but this was early. What, like we had applied, we put a weather station in the middle of the property, we auger a hole every three meters, whatever. Like we knew everything mm. about this site. So he has all this data, but ever since he's been, he's been compiling and, and maintaining this huge resource. Um, and, and, you know, with the other wineries that he consults to, they hadn't had that because they've been planted for however many, you know, they rotate every 60 years or whatever, yeah. but they've been there forever. And, and it's a different thing. Whereas we were a raw prospect with that year. And, you know, I was at the very beginning, I was given the choice. I could bulldoze all the, all the roots to, you know, I had all these stumps out here, bulldoze it to one end plant and destroy the property because you homogenize the topsoil into the alluvial silt yep. or you pull the stumps out, you re 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 repair the alluvial silt, put the topsoil back and we did it that way. It took us longer um, but at the same time we were able to study the site and that year so that it, when Valerie is picking out, you know, reasons for certain clones and varieties um, if you look at a topographical map of painted rock at the south edge, it's Merlot because the sun comes up behind that rock and it moves around like that. Merlot likes it a little cooler. So it goes right around the corner. Uh. And that, those are the three Merlot blocks right there. And then the fourth is in an area that's hot and that's for, that's for complexity. Just add a different element to it. So there was reason for like every one of these things was for a very specific reason. Why did we plant Chardonnay just in that one little area? Well, when you drove in my gate, there's a, you drove over a creek, and there's a cold breeze that comes down the mountain, down that creek, and it just influences that one area because we had the heat sensors right at the road. When you're driving out and you go around where the sculpture is, that road divides cold, hot. That's Cab Sauve Chardonnay. Fascinating. And it's right there, but you huh. can stand there, and you can if you stand, walk four meters over to the other side, you'll feel the air coming down the it's, it was meant to be, but that if we were, had, I bought it in January and planted in May, like we originally contemplated, we wouldn't have known that. Hmm. Could have planted Capsov in the whole area and it just would have been vastly different, one cold and one hot area. So, so then how did you, I mean, obviously a lot of work went into like very, I mean, still, but very early with your property here. Like how how did you how did you decide how did you figure out this is going to be worthwhile to spend the time to spend you know the, taking almost a scientific process to figure out the property you know it's 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 a different way uh, um, I I got into the business with a simple game plan I would only get into the industry if I if I had a ten out of ten not a nine and a half out of ten had to be a ten. And that would drive, and I, this was advice that I was getting. You know, it, it's all predicated on the dirt that you own. That's, that's your anchor and your terroir, meaning the influences. So I found some hot properties, but they would shade at certain times. There were some issues, or it had stagnant air, or it had, there were some other issues with these things, or frost issues and stuff. And 
the more I, so we looked at about over 30 different projects and some were wineries and some were dirt um, until we found this one. And this was the only 10 out of 10 in that entire time. And that was really eye-opening when we did see it. I got a funny story because I was down with Ray Signorello, who I admire a lot. He's done a fantastic job and he's got his property on Silver Outer Trail down in Napa. And I'd been going down to his winery while he was building it and having a lot of success. And the year before, so it would have been 2000 and the summer of 2004, summer of 2003, I was down in Napa with him. And it was like two in the morning. I was standing by his infinity pool overlooking the vineyard down to Silver Outer Trail. And I turned to him and I said, Ray, you own the most beautiful property in the world. It's absolutely gorgeous. And I was looking and I hadn't found anything. And then in January 2004, I'd found this place and I'd made the deal. And I flew Ray up from the city and the two of us stood at the top of the property and there was about a foot of snow on the property. And it was a bluebird day, just like today. Hmm. And I turned to Ray and I said, Ray, you own the second most beautiful property in the world. <laughs> but you know what? <laughs> and it's ours. It's our job now to do it justice. Mm. And, and it was heavy lifting. And I can't say, it was, it, now it's really fun because mm. it's been de-risked. I know it works now. Yeah. So, so it, 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 what that makes, what it, what it really does is it frees your conscience from the hard decisions. There are no hard decisions. Everything is just yes. Like if we have to do something to make a better wine, we'll just do it because we're really getting, if, if, if we're competing, you know, we just won a, a decanter wine of the year, our 2017 red icon. That's a game changer for us because I mean that it, it, it's, if I now go to other markets and that's by way of introduction, who we are, there's there, it, it's an entirely different opportunity for us and wonderful like it's it's a, it really is a game changer for us so knowing that the other wineries that were competing in the blend category i mean there's some serious wineries and i want to compete with the, you know again it, it is not chest pounding but i'm a proud canadian and i want us to be the best winery in the world but it may not be me it may not be my daughter it may not be my granddaughter it may not be, but but if if we if we adhere to the most rigorous protocol, I ask Alan all the time, is there anything we could be doing more? And he said, no, just realize the potential. Just stay with it. And, and we haven't had a bad vintage here. You do, you make the adjustments. So we've dropped extra fruit. We've done, we had a vintage where we lost 11 tons to bears. We've had some, well, that's why the, the whole place is electrified now. But we've had these experiences and instead of getting down about it, just do something about it. So <laughs> they, they got 11 tons of fruit one year. We electrified the perimeter. We don't have an issue with bears anymore. But, um, you know, we, every other surprise, for all the negative ones, the positive ones have just been so good. Like this, this here's, here's another example where we just lucked out. Like fires have been a real issue in the Okanagan. Mm -hmm. And we had a vicious fire here last year. And it came to the very sou southern border of Painted Rock within about 800 meters. And the minute the fire got there and the, w and the wind was going north, the wind pretty much shifted and started going south again. So we didn't suffer anything other than nature took care of all the f fuel for future <laughs> years. So, so I'm, but I was quite emotional. I thought mm. when the big fire, it was huge. You can see up there was the, last up year, the rocks right? up there. Sir, are you talking last year? Last year, can you yeah. see? Can I you was, see I all was, the red up there on the on the rocks? Yeah. 
those are the new painted rocks. That's fire <laughs> retardant. All those red stripes on the mountain, yeah. those are our painted rocks at Painted Rock. Now, originally we're named Painted Rock because we have native pictographs on the mm -hmm. back of our property. They're 500 and some odd years old. Well, when that was happening, I talked to the firefighters and I said, okay, those are the new painted rocks. <laughs> and I'm very uh, eternally grateful for those guys because, man, they put up, they, you know, it was, they, they did a magnificent job. And it just would have, I don't know what I would have done. I remember standing here the first night and it was just a ferocious fire right there. And it was quite emotional because I, our staff and everybody had gone and I was standing here by myself and. I thought I could come here tomorrow morning. The whole place is gone. And I don't have, mm -hmm. I can't do it twice. You know, yeah. this has been, I started this when I was in my, you know, I'm 63 now. And I started the journey. Yeah. Uh, oh God, I was in my, I was around 40. Yeah. When I started looking for the property. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a long time. <laughs> it doesn't seem like it. People, I remember I was telling people I'd been in the industry quite a while. Well, you know, the, the preparatory years and the, you know, the, the three or four years we were looking for the property, it was still kind of, I wasn't in the industry. I wanted to be. And I was actually going to give up on the journey uh, right at the very end. It was, it was around probably November of 03. I was headed back to Vancouver and I was sitting on a plane with Cynthia Enns and she said she knew I was looking with laughingstock and she knew I was looking for a long time and she said um, before you give up you've got to phone this one guy and he's not a realtor he's just a guy who middled a whole lot of winery transactions over the years and I phoned him up and we talked for half an hour he used to be in the brokerage business in Toronto and he said okay I found the guy and I said what are you talking about And he said I've got the property for you I've been waiting for the right guy, and it was this one. Wow! And I came up, and it was, you know, I uh, I was blown away when I saw it. But believe me, I'm not the guy to discern whether it's worthy or not. It just gave first impression was really good, but all those stumps. And then my advisors said, you know, when they started to think about it, they thought, well, you know, the idea of of spending the time and removing them properly and and for for you know delaying the planting and planting for a reason, best money ever spent, best time. I, like, honestly, that would have been, that was the difference between screwing up the opportunity or, or taking advantage of it. And that was a year, I'm a hopelessly impatient person. In fact, <laughs> that I spent that extra year, God, I'm so happy that we did, because it could have been, could yeah. have messed up a lot. I, I think that's amazing, and I think that's something a lot of people just, you know, that are in the industry need to hear because, I mean, that's something we even see, like when we do work with vineyards, we'll see, we'll map an area and if they've bulldozed it, if they've really seriously, what you were talking about, mixing the, the glacial with that topsoil, and we'll see 10, 12, you know, something that was dealt with 15 years ago and we can see the soil's a mess still, right? And well, it, it, it gets better over time, but we can still see. I can take you on an ATV down to a mm -hmm. corner where my neighbor has like an acre and a half down there and is contiguous with this and it was had the same stumps. And he called me and he, he, he said, congratulations, we won two left-hand governor awards in our first vintage, and, and, and he said, I'm going to plant my acreage. And I said, if you remember one thing, the best thing I ever did was, was remove the stumps, don't bulldoze them. And a few days later, there was a bulldozer. Well, if you go down to that property, this is, that's like 10 years ago, and uh, at least 10. That's uh, 12 years ago or so. My plants down there are that big, and his are that big. And half of them don't produce fruit. Yeah. So 
you know, he called me a couple of years ago to see if I wanted to buy it from him. And I said, I don't think so. <laughs> I just go buy it and I do this every time because yeah. I'm just so glad I got good advice. Yeah. You know what? Yeah. I did the right thing. And, and this is a very healthy place. Those plants are small because I planted them four year, five years ago. Mm. That's just an extra half an acre that I used to leave vacant in case I wanted to build an inn or something. We just decided we just don't want to have anything. This, is, this place is just screaming for fruit. And so that's a new clone of Chardonnay from a warmer part to add a little bit of interest mm. to that, which is, it's, it's, it's been in the last two vintages. When I first started to work with Alain, he asked me, or I didn't even start to work with him. He just, we were talking philosophically, what did we want to do? And I said, we knew what we'd planted and, and we planted the five Bordeaux varieties. And I wanted, I said, what I wanted to do was equip our ultimate winemaker with a full suite of blending opportunities. So you kind of have all these things, these, these Bordeaux varietals that everybody's, they know they work and, but I said, Elan, if you work with me, I don't want to make a Bordeaux wine. I want to make an Okanagan wine. So throw the rule book out. If it's X percent in Bordeaux, I'd, I'd just throw the rule book out. And he said, John, if you said anything different, I wouldn't work with you. That was the best. I just, then I thought, okay, we're thinking alike. Um, years later, the first vintage, it was really interesting because he tasted through the five varieties independently. And he said, you know, if I was going to do the blend, and he wasn't working for me at the time. He was just in the last bit of interviewing. He said, I would do almost 20% of each because they're first plantings and they're very expressive. And you're not going to get this every year. But they're so expressive that they can probably, and they're not really harsh. Like a, a Petit Verdot could be harsh, but he said you could do a single varietal out of this one. So I would do maybe 20% of each one. So we did a... Uh, I said, let's just do a, a test blend of 20 of each. And that was the last bit of due diligence. I hired him on the spot. <laughs> and the ultimate 2007 blend that won the Lieutenant Governor's Award, it won a bunch of stuff, was around 19% of one and 17 of the other and 23 of the other. And so it was pretty close to that. So we did that. And then over the years, it started to show as as the varieties started, or varietals started to become... Uh, more mature, the Merlot has earned a bigger spot. So it's kind of, remember when we did that dinner in London with Stephen Spurrier and he said, he said, okay, the theme of this dinner is I want you to bring the wine you're most proud of and then I want you to bring your inspiration. Wow. So I immediately picked up the phone and I phoned Alan and I said, what are we most proud of and what's our inspiration? <laughs> and he's, he's, he's great. And he said, he said, okay, what's the red icon? It's our blend. He's really, really thinks about this. And then he said, and you know, as far as inspiration, when I first tasted that very first time we were in the tasting room, my mind didn't go to a region. It went to one winery on earth. I said, come on. And he said, yeah, it was the right bank of Bordeaux. It's the most elevated vineyard in the, in the right bank with the brightest acidity and it's Cheval Blanc. And that was why I put that dinner together with the Cheval Blanc and the red icon. Because So I brought the 05 Cheval Blanc and the 09 Icon side by side. Those are the last two wines of the night. And you know what? It was, it, it's so, again, it, it, <clears throat> it wasn't trying to model it after anything. It was what he was getting out of here. Hmm. 
And and so in terms of putting the blend together, so that was <laughs> that was we had the seven, the eight, and then the in nine. So in nine, we were blending the nine, and and the process is, uh, Alain doesn't do anything by himself. We're always in it together. It's me, Gabe, and Alain. And when it comes to blending, it's very interactive, and I've had a really incredible learning experience for all these years with him. And ultimately, he puts the blend together, but we're talking about it, okay? So you want to increase the mouthfeel. So you got the anchor tenants, Merlot and Franck, and then was start putting pieces of the puzzle together. Needs a little bit more structure, so that's going to be some Cab Sauve. Needs to be brightened a little bit more of the Malbec. You know, all these have needs the aromatics. So anyway, all these have their their roles. And then in 20, 2009, uh, he put together this blend that Gabe and I were looking at him saying, this is outstanding. Like, you know, he's got these, this depth of knowledge that is that is available. And hallelujah, our industry, because it's just being imparted to Gabe and to my guys in the vineyard. And everybody, if they work elsewhere one day, they will have had this background that is just, you know, they'll look at it in a different way. And certain parts of the vineyard need different things, but they recognize it now. It isn't like he has to come and say. They'll say, oh, by the way, we discerned this and we're, we're you know, dropped in a little extra fruit, did whatever, and they just know to do it. It's pretty gratifying. Something I'm curious about that you've spoken quite a bit about, uh, you know, in the past is the, the, your family and the fact that you're thinking generationally, you've mentioned that, you know, a couple times today. And so how do you, how do you do that well? Because I mean, the, you know, you're, you, you're wanting to build something that's going to last a long, long time. So yeah. how do you, how do you do that? How do you make that a good job? Well, you know, I, uh, I've been able to, to do it from 30,000 feet now because I've delegated. So if you hire the right team and they're able to do it, then I'm a visionary for it. And I'm not, so I'm not in the mix a ton, but I'm, I, I try to spend time uh, politically where I can try to help my peers. I try to spend time uh, politically where I can help our region get out there. Um, it's way more important for me. When we started the Okanagan Wine Initiative, my pitch to some of the wineries was, if you join the initiative, I'll introduce you to my... I, I was out there by myself in a lot of these places. I had six distributors in continental Europe. I went to one of the big wineries that joined us, and I said, how many do you have? And they said, none. I said, well, if you join, I'll introduce you to them. I mean, these are the things that keep me going. And I think Lauren has, is, is wired the same. And, you know, she's a mom, and she's pregnant with her second now. But that, she's, she lives in Vancouver. She spent some time here. But we're still able. If, if, you're, if you've structured it right and you have the right team in place, then give them their, you know, you know it's to everyone's advantage to aim at the highest prize. Hmm. Everybody here gets it. Nobody gets a bonus for, for producing more fruit. Nobody gets a bonus. You know what I mean? Yes. Like those, that's not what makes us tick. Um, I remember when we first started in our first vintage, Ravinder Panu and his family worked for me in the vineyard for about the first seven or eight years, and they were fantastic. I just loved these people. Well, right at the beginning, they'd worked in the industry for a number of years, and uh, I noticed, we noticed very early on that when they were harvesting, everything was going in the pails. And Alain said, oh, no, 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 no. If the cluster is imperfect, it goes on the ground. And they were because they used to get bonus on tonnage. Hmm. 
and and then so that was imparted to them and then I came back a couple days later and I went out and I saw one of the guys put a crummy cluster in the barrel and I said just a second um, I'm gonna have to let you go if you keep doing this because we want to do our sorting in the vineyard not on the sorting table like I've got a Latrier vibrating sorting table it's really good I want the best fruit to be down there I don't want to have to have all this stuff so it was a mindset that had to be they had to change their minds and their understanding. Well, now, right after that, everybody got it. And now, up until the last few years when Ravinder and his family were, I used to go out there at harvest time. I'd, I'd, be, I'd be walking along saying hi to everybody, and I'd hear this Ravinder be out there, hey, John, and he'd pick a cluster, and he'd throw it over his shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say, yay. <laughs> he said, it wasn't perfect. Yeah. <laughs> you know what, that's... But it's it, it when you you know that that's that the, the game plan is different, hmm. and and if we want to compete with the best, it is about putting the best fruit into the mix, and doing you can do all the hard decisions you want on paper, but it's practicality. It's the people that do it, and what they're understanding because you can know it, but unless they do and they buy in, so I I have a really good relationship with everybody here. It's not a big team. There you go. Five, six people in the vineyard, a couple in the winery. Um, you know, it's it's not that big. At most, a couple. Some, you know, it just depends. Mm -hmm. Gabe's down there full time, but then yeah. Alan comes, yeah. does stuff, and then we have certain times of the year he's got help. But it, it finally oiled. I mean, something it seems like you're really implicitly saying is that so much of it starts like so many of your hard decisions are first made in the vineyard. Like you're spending an inordinate amount of time and and money in terms of time. You know. Uh, man hours and things like that, getting things right in the vineyard, whether it's when you started, you're pulling stumps, when, when it's when you're, you're picking, that that, everything is there. Everything is there. And, but you know, it's a really interesting, so, so I can extrapolate to other things. And um, when I first hired Alan and he knew where we wanted to go, he said, here's your first test. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, you're going to move all that fruit into your winery. And the biggest issue with so he segments these things but it's all part of the combination is your wine and he said he said one of the biggest issues the biggest issues in in a winery is hygiene and the biggest negative the biggest opportunity for to fail from your hygiene protocol is sharing oak because when oak is shared from winery to winery all the failures, all the hygienic failures, like all these things, they're shared through the oak. When you buy oak, from, another winery buys oak from me, they're getting my hygiene. So if I got Bretomyces or I've got something, there it goes. Welcome to your Interesting. place. So Alain said, what I want you to do, and here's the test, I want you to buy 100% new French oak in your first vintage. And then you will never, when you use second fill oak, it's your oak. It stayed in here. You didn't bring anything in. And I said, okay. And then the next year, he said, okay, I want you to buy 100% new French oak again. So year one, we bought 100% Sega Moreau. And Alain came and he tasted every clone of every variety and rated it out of five. One be one clone of the, the Syrah would be three and a half out of five. The other would be four and a half out of five. And, and one worked, one didn't. And then year two, it was Segamero and Sori. And then we got to compare, but it was 100% new French oak again. 
Well, lo and behold, we did that three vintages. And then, at last one was, um, it was Sori, no, it was Segamaro, Sori, and um, it's becoming a lot of years now. Uh, anyway, um, we then have tweaked it year over year and introduced others just a small amount. Like in our cab sove, we'll use a small amount of another just for a certain aspect. But in year two, I've got uh, my, I sold all of the single vintage oak to Poplar Grove, my friend Ian. And I bought 100% new again. Well, a little, when, when that was happening and the trucks were coming and going, I had a friend of mine, another winery owner, looked at me and he said, John, what the hell are you doing? And I said, well, this is what a land told me to do. It's, and he said, oh, man, I could have saved you so much, so much money, like a couple hundred thousand bucks with all this oak you're buying. And I said, what do you mean? He said, all you need to do is use a barrel for a vintage and you want to reinvigorate the oak, you put a stave in that barrel and it'll reinvigorate the oak. And I said, look, I'm just going to do as Alan says and, and I'm not going to do that. And so out went the old, in came the new. And then one night, a while later, I get a call. It's like seven or eight at night and it's this gentleman. And he, he said, he said, John, my name is Gerard Bertrand. Do you know Gerard? He was, he was an order of the British Empire, like one of the most, Jancis Robinson's best friend, like hmm. one of the top guys in the world. And Gerard gave me a call. And he was in the Okanagan only for three days. And he said, I've been hearing that I should come and meet with you. So I was fly. I said, I, I didn't know who he was. And he, he just said, I, my name is Gerard Bertrand. I, I'm here. And uh, I'd, I'd like to come by your winery tomorrow at 10 o'clock if I, if, if I could. I've been hearing some nice stuff. And I said, sure. Well, I hang up and I Google him. And I said, wow, <laughs> this guy is really serious. And he came the next day. And he came in. And we've just, for the last few months, had my 08 in barrel. And he walks in. And we're tasting some of the earlier wines. And then he first barrel sample he takes of the 08 I put it into his glass and he said I can't believe this is your second vintage thank God you don't do what that guy up the road does I said what's that and he said put staves in his barrels I said did he tell you that and he said no 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 we can tell this because you got to think about it it's one of the four sides is toasted and the other side three sides aren't <laughs> and it imparts something that is completely identifiable we can tell when somebody's put a stave in their barrel mm -hmm. you can totally tell yeah. and it's just the wrong thing so these are, that was, was one of the first opportunities when I got to say, just do it as land says. So ever since, we did that 100%, 100%, 100%. And then it went, so it was Demtos is the hmm. third, uh, Cooper. So then it went down to 90, 80, 70, 60. So after all these years, we're about 40% new. And it's, it, we, we did 35 one year. It, it just wasn't perfect. Mm -hmm. So, and this is a land, he said, no, it, it, you don't want it too much. You don't. So where we are with the elegance, our journey has gone from, we don't need to know that we can produce big wines. The journey is the pursuit of elegance and it's everything in perfect balance. And, and if you want to be elegant, then you have to tick all those boxes. Oak is fine if it's used right and the right coopers. So, you know, 
some of these new Coopers that we have are, uh, like I said, it'll only be 5% for the particular variety, but goodness, it can make a, a lovely difference. Hmm. I mean, that's really interesting. The And I think that, that kind of like you're saying, I, I love that concept of pursuit of elegance. It's Yeah, yeah. And that's something that is just, again, it's just a mindset. It's, it's throw that cluster out. It's all these little things. Any of these decisions from, you know, are you going to crop to three or three and a half tons? Well, you know what? It Sometimes one vintage, it just, we'd, we'd drop too much fruit. Didn't benefit. You know, it just, the, there, there is a balance. It has to carry the right amount for it. So, so, you know, we've, we've tweaked here and there. And one was just a labor mistake. They'd taken too much fruit off. Hmm. And that was just one block. So we were able to balance it with the other and it was okay. But, you know, these are, these are things that we learn. <laughs> you know, so there have been some costly mistakes, mistakes, but not too many of them. Because it's the industry, we are very fortunate that as an industry, I got in at a good time. Um, the, I think Canada is very understanding that there are some pretty good-hearted people in the industry that are trying hard and they're humble. Like, it, you don't see a lot of attitude in this industry. There are a lot of people that just, you know, I, I meet with my peers and they all say, oh yeah, it's heavy lifting. <laughs> There's no mixing it up. All yeah. put all, uh, you know, however glorious you want to make it. To begin with, you really work hard and you really risk. And and I I have the most trusting wife because when we got in, we stepped off a very big dock. <laughs> but probably didn't know how big, even how big the dock was then. <laughs> no, you know, and that's 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 what happens with our with our industry is when you get in, you assume A and it's three A, and that's that's what it is. And you've got to just make sure. I was very fortunate that I had the resources and and a patient wife. So we we had holding, we we had the ability to be able to make mistakes if we did. And, and it would never, the mistakes we were never going to be born of the fact that we we're trying to cut a corner, ever. That was just never going to be part of it. If, if it was, it was that we were trying too hard. And that's, that's if, if you have that mindset, and I haven't regretted anything. Um, you know, uh, the, all those things from oaking to, to Alan. You know, it was really interesting because with, the, with COVID, there was a good chance that he wasn't going to be able to come over. Well, he was here a month ago, and he's an essential service in Canada. <laughs> How do you like that? We got him described as an essential service. He is an essential service. In a category and, uh, all his own, yeah. Oh, he totally is. But our industry, I was lobbying the, the government like crazy. And, and we are, you know, you can't... Um, he's just necessary. Because continuity is everything and trust is everything. And I can get on a certain radar, but if, if what I am delivering has altered, and, and it, it comes from, I mean, I, I can't replicate Alain's palette. I can't, you know, right now the journey is about what we're doing. And, and his, but then again, Gabe is really close. So he's had all those, all those years. So, but, but we... You know, we got them here. <laughs> I think we're gonna we, we we dodge that bullet, but uh, no, things things are good. I think 
as we start to wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about kind of where you see the future of BC wine is, both where you see it going and where what you think it needs to be doing to be taking, you know, some of these next steps to keep growing, to, you know, to become, uh, I think, more prominent, better quality here, obviously, internationally. So maybe I'll start with that first question. Uh, you know, right now, where do you see BC wine going? Where do you think it's, it's at as well? You know, um, I think we're making really good steps internationally. And I think that, you know what, it's one of these things that uh, you get on radars and like us, and it's not just Painted Rock, but others, you do your things. This business of us getting that decanter, that gets that word Okanagan out there. So we are, are starting to get there. But you know the biggest um, negative in Canadian wine is Canada. And it's our government and our inability to sell wine direct to consumers across Canada. Um, the fact that the Ontario government has not embraced the BC government's uh, mandate where after Bill C-311, which is about eight, eight years ago, the federal government allowed for provinces, for they, they said you can ship wine interprovincially. And that was supposed to really help our industry. And I remember I had a conversation on the radio with Rich Coleman and Bill Good on Bill's radio program. And uh, it, was, it was really funny because Rich, Rich said, look, the, the, the Bill C-311 was going to come down the next day. And he said, when the bill comes down, I've got a policy and you're going to be really happy about it, John. I said, okay, I'm going to trust you. It's about the interprovincial transfer wine. So the next day, they called me again. I was on the radio program with them again. And... And uh, Bill kind of prepped the conversation, saying that okay, now, now the minister has ha, Coleman has uh, has his new policy. He's going to read it, and he said okay. And he described. He said basically, a British Columbian could carry a case of wine across a border, and physically. And I said, just a second, that's kind of, that's not e-commerce, that's wagon train commerce. That means I can, I can drive my Ford Econoline van to Alberta and pick up a case of wine and drive it home. That, I want to be able to point, click and buy. You know what Minister Coleman's response was? That makes a ton of sense. Just leave it with me. Two weeks later, they came up with a policy that said can, British Columbians can point, click and buy wines from other provinces. Boom. Done. And that, but he, he said in the conversation, he said, John, what if Ontario... And the other provinces don't reciprocate. What if Ontario doesn't reciprocate? And I said, well, we'll shame, it, shame them into it. Well, eight years later, they haven't. So if I was to say one primary, what's going on in the industry? We really need Canada to be Canada. Let's, let's help one another. Because the, the, I understand if Ontario wants to protect their Ontario wine industry. Um, the BC government didn't feel they had to protect ours, and they don't need, they have to protect theirs. They will benefit from tourism. They will benefit from British Columbians. I don't think British Columbians are buying much Ontario wine because they're not buying BC wine. If it became a national story, I wrote an op I wrote a uh, letter to the editor of the, or the uh, Toronto Star several months ago <laughs> and, uh, appealing to Premier Ford to be, you know, here's an opportunity to be Canada's uh, free trade leader, you know, do change the rules and allow for Ontario residents to legally purchase wines because the one issue that he has been ill-advised about is that it's going to be a line item on their 
it's going to be a, a hit to the LCBO. It's not going to be because the guys who are really going to do the shipping are just small and medium who don't need the facilities of the LCBO, all those stores. I don't produce enough wine. I want to ship to 200 wine club members. Yes. That's all I want to do. And But you know what? Those members are probably going to come here to, as on a holiday and then we're, you guys are going to ship a bunch of wine to BC and, and we're going to go there on a holiday. So let's do... My family are very, very old Ontario family, and the fact that I can't legally ship to the Walkers from Walkerton, come on, guys, this is crazy. Like, we're really old Canadians, and it just kills me that I can't do it legally. Um, lots of us do it anyway. Yeah. And that's just, um, you know, if I ended up, I, I would, that's, a, that's one thing I would fight in the Supreme Court. I'm kind of wired that way. I might have to. <laughs> well, it's a little bit like offsite shipping here in BC, right? Yeah. Which was finally legalized, but I mean, everyone, everyone was offsite doing it, offsite storage, anyways. So that you know what it is, and you you, you do need the politicians have to to um, recognize. And COVID's a really amazing opportunity to be to to to. I, I think everybody's had to take a step back and think about what's important. And think, hey, if I can feather the bed of anybody, I'd much prefer feathering the bed of Canadians. I'm not looking at it from a profit motive for Canadians. I'm looking at it as an opportunity for us to grow an industry as proud Canadians. Do you realize that Canadians, on average, purchase 16% of the wine that Canadians consume is Canadian wine? Uh, in France, it's, it's, I think it's the numbers like 92% of the wine that French consume is French wine. In the U.S., it's like 84%. In Italy, it's, it's, it's 96%. It's crazy. And in Canada, it's 16 Come on, guys. And that's an awareness thing. Well, and I, I think that's 100%. I mean, this is something when you're talking about the, the international impact. That's, that's it. Because I have a lot of friends and family not connected to the industry at all. And, you know, some of them love BC wine, some of them don't. But a lot of them know very little about it because it doesn't have that recognition. Haven't had the opportunity. And that's, that's exactly it. So... Even if I do Zoom calls into Ontario, and I, um, you know, I'm very active doing those things, if they can't go down to, and, and, you know, if it just isn't readily available, it's really difficult. Or if I can't take an ad out, I'd be taking a radio ad out in Toronto saying, hey, join our wine club. You know, it's, it's really, that's, it's, it's a great opportunity to get access to everything that we produce. Only 50% of the wines that we produce are available to the general public. The rest is just for the club. Hmm. And that just, you know, there has to be something special about it. You get discounts and things, but that's, um, I really want it to be a pan-Canadian thing. I love BC. <laughs> Our family's been here, you know, my dad's side of the family has been here since the, whatever, early 1900s, but uh, um, it is nice to be able to ship everywhere. What would you like the BC wine industry to be doing? Like, what is something you think kind of the industry as a whole, you'd let, you know, over the next year or two, if, if they moved in this direction, that you think that would be a huge positive step? You know, we've got some pretty good people in government right now who uh, they've just, Lana Popham has some people working for her who I think are, are they're, they're some pretty bright guys. And I think they have to, they have to make the initiative. And industry only has so much leverage for me to write a letter to the editor in in the uh, Toronto Star is one thing but for the minister to pick up the phone and and call their government and say we got to figure this out let's let's do it let's let's do something and give them all the credit 
you know, Ford be the free trade champion of, of Canada, but do it. Um, I, I think that it's, these are things that are achievable, but it has to be, I think you have to, I actually flew back years ago when Ford first got in and I got some higher level meetings and, and they were pretty receptive, but some things fell apart. Um, again, I'm an industry guy. You need government to government and they have to go there. And sometimes there's quid pro quo. They have other stuff to offer. Now, I don't know what's in their quiver of opportunity, but give them something mm -hmm. and say, you do this, we'll do this. Cause already, I mean, you know, f is, does that mean one small thing that we can be doing in the industry is even just personally pressuring our government, doing more of a job of pressuring our government officials? Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I, I think that federally, it's uh, when, when the Conservatives were in, Dan Albus and Michelle Rempel were huge champions. Um, we haven't got, well, other than Stephen Fuhrer, who was really good, but we don't have um, liberal representation here. So we don't have a, a voice in government. So it's, it's been, we've been sadly lacking in the, fe in, in the feds. Mm. Um, Dan's still banging the drum, but he's, he's, he's not the government. So we do need, I think we've got the ear of Victoria. Lana Poppins family owned a vineyard in, in, on the island. And, and she really has given us uh, her ear. And she's very receptive, like she's really listening. And, and we're trying to work on some initiatives right now that could, that are industry. Uh, I'm working on a thing called the, the BC Wine Center of Excellence, and that's to bring education and, and a tourist kind of nucleus to the Okanagan. Most other primary wine regions in the world have these things. We don't. So got the city of Penticton on board. Uh, Lana Popham has, has agreed to finance the first three studies to, to see if we can get this, move the needle a little bit. We're trying to get the educational component perhaps um, managed or, or offered by UBC. So there's some really good things happening, but I, I think they get it. So while she, we have her here, I just need to get her staff yeah. to start talking to their staff and see if we can see if we can do something. So what are you excited about for the next year or two for Painted Rock? What are you kind of in the nearest future really looking forward to? Mm, that's really good. I just shipped the wines to Eric Asimov in New York. <laughs> yeah, that's... A and that's, <laughs> that's, come on, that's about as exciting as it can be. And the, 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 the U.S. market is a different animal. We're in California and we're well represented there. My wines are in New York. But um, New York Times is, I think he's the most powerful wine writer in the U.S., and uh, to get on that radar wouldn't just be a, you know, again, if he'll write us up, I'm praying, my whole thing would be, Eric, come and see us. I'll host you. Come out. See what makes us tick and meet some other wineries. You know, get, get to see the community. Uh, to me, that's the elephant in the room, but, but it's a... F if you get into London and the UK, you're, you're in the UK. Getting into the US, states have different rules and you're shipping into each state. You have to have different, you have to have a distributor and an agent in all over the place. It's really difficult. So right now, California is, we're, we're doing well in California. Uh, got them into New York. Now I'm in Florida. But every one is a challenge. Every, getting into each state is like getting into a separate country. 
It's hard. But if you're, I'm not saying championed, but if you're made, if we happen to have been written up by Eric Asimov, it goes from being a cold call to a warm call. Hey, my name's John. I own Painted Rock Estate Winery. Read this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Decanter's helping. Yep. That opened the door for that, that communication was the Decanter article. So these are these are the little things, but uh, I'm I'm you know we're all going to when COVID is done sooner than later. I think I, I'm a big believer that there's going to be a whole lot of revenge travel happening. And I think <laughs> I think a lot of people you know I want to go elsewhere, and I think a lot of people are going to want to come here, and and we'll be ready for it. We've learned to do things differently too. We've we everybody learned to pivot so. We're working our way out of weddings. We used to do weddings here. I want things that are more industry specific. So instead of the weddings at Painted Rock, we've been doing picnics. And my daughter bought all these this this separate furniture where you can have safe and separated because we've got an expansive area that we can do this. And then it's more wine direct. You know, it's it's come here, spend time, enjoy it, have some wine, have a picnic, make it. So that's the way we've pivoted. And I hope that people come and take take advantage of it because I just love it. Because when it's social and I'm not running around in a mask, I love hanging around here, meeting people. I'm I don't work at Painted Rock. I hang out here and get in the way as my staff. <laughs> honestly, and they really know. There's John. He's here getting in the way again. But it's uh, I thoroughly enjoy it. It's a fun journey. Yeah, yeah a beautiful space. It's absolutely gorgeous. You know, my biggest challenge with this whole thing at the very beginning, when we had this incredible building built, um, the instructions to the architect was. I wanted something worthy of the site that performed a certain function but sat artfully on it. And I wouldn't change a thing. It's perfect. And I'm so appreciative. Now, I, I just, uh, you know, we want to keep doing little, you know, we've introduced art, little things. I want to do some other things. But really, it is more about drilling in that we are all just about the wine and the site and... Uh, Sorry. Anyway, it's uh, uh we're it, it's it's a fun time. What what would you ask the audience to do? So obviously, come check out Painted Rock, come have a picnic, try some of your wine. Is there anything else? That uh, thank you. You know, um, I'm always here to answer questions. I I I I pride myself in being very available for the simple reason. Um, I, I, I never tire of this and you know I was really curious when I got in and I didn't one thing about the wine industry is I uh, well one very important lesson at the very beginning was remember I said know what you don't know so I, I, I always when I don't know I always say if I don't know I employ someone who does yeah. which is which is really gets me off the hook all the time but I've, I've just by um, osmosis you learn a lot, and and come and satisfy your curiosities and see this place because they didn't make two of them, and I I really love sharing it. That's what makes us tick. But otherwise, uh, you know, try try the the other thing is once there's no COVID, I always encourage people to to um, come and do a barrel taste because then you taste the varietals that are oftentimes taste of Petit Verdot on its own. So we don't do a varietal Petit Verdot. It's a, it's a role player in the icon. But 
try it out of the tank sometime and it's it changed your opinion of what could be done in the Okanagan Valley. And this is what Alain said, because typically Petit Verdot is, it's quite harsh and it can be, it'll be two to five percent of a Bordeaux blend. Here Alain said that could be a standalone varietal in a minute if we had more. I just <laughs> don't have enough of it. That's just, uh, that's it. But do, um, please, anybody listening, lobby your, your, your politicians and say we as an industry would, as a national industry, we should be able to, to cross the finish line on this thing and make it because then all of a sudden, man, it would just be so dynamic. Great. Well, thanks so much, John, for taking the time for sharing with the audience. This was this was wonderful. You can tell I really hate doing this. <laughs> I just love it. You're a great host. I really, I thoroughly enjoy it. And anytime, honestly, it's, uh, it's, it. You know, I, I I love the fact that you're out there getting our our industry out. In, in this manner, because especially in this time, you know, there's a lot of stay home and, and you know, people have the time to, to do this. So why not use it constructively? And, you know, especially when it's a day this nice, and we can, we can share how good it can be here. Yeah, perfect. It's pretty good. But we get a lot of days like this. Yeah. Well, thanks, John. Well, my great pleasure. You can find out more about John and his winery at paintedrock.ca. More importantly, you can purchase their wine there, and I would strongly encourage you to check out the beautiful winery located just south of Penticton on the east side of Skaha Lake. Maybe have a picnic. It's a beautiful location. Thanks, everyone, for listening. <laughs>